It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Tom Brady at the White House. This is a very a cool story. Brady there with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers celebrating their Super Bowl championship, which was roughly a million years ago. And, you know, it's more fascinating, Just not just that Tom Brady is this incredible celebrity quarterback who has won so many Super Bowl championships, but because he used to be perceived as a kind of a buddy or ally of Donald Trump. So there he is with President Biden, and Brady's talking about, I got to say, he's either a very funny guy or he's got a great joke writer. But he's talking and he says, you know, it didn't look good for us, the Bucks, for a while. A lot, a lot of people think we could have won. I think, in fact, about 40% of the people still don't think we won. And Biden says, I understand that. That must have been choreographed, or else Biden is a quick, pretty quick on the trigger there. Then the president says, you know, a lot is made about the fact that we have the oldest coach ever to win the Super Bowl and the oldest quarterback to win the Super Bowl. Well, I'll tell you right now, you won't hear any jokes from me about that. As far as I'm concerned, nothing wrong with being the oldest guy to make it to the mountaintop. Uh, and he says to Brady, you got about 20 years left. Uh, you're the best ever to play. I think that's undisputed right now. I mean, just look at the track record, uh, even at his advanced age. Uh, more from Brady. Um, nice for me to be back here. We had a game in Chicago where I forgot what down it was. I lost track of one down in 21 years of playing, and they started calling me Sleepy Tom. Why would they do that to me? Biden says, I don't know. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, Milwaukee Bucks winning the NBA championship last night in six games over the Phoenix Suns. And this guy, Giannis, I mean, I'm glad he has a cool first name like Giannis, the Greek freak, because I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name, but he was unstoppable, 50 points. I mean, he's carried this team uh, through a lot of ups and downs. And uh, as I read more about him, I liked him even more. I mean, not just that he's a great athlete, but this is a guy who says that he grew up uh, not knowing where his next meal was coming from, that his mother sold stuff on the street, and now he's you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars. And he could have left Milwaukee when he was a free agent, you know, gone to some better team and won a championship then, being one of like two or three great players. But instead, he, he was loyal to the city. He stuck it out. He did it the hard way, as he put it. And I think that deserves a lot of credit. All right. Some more serious stuff, and there's nothing more serious than COVID-19. And COVID-19, unfortunately, tragically, heartbreakingly, you know, making a big comeback. I've been talking about the numbers, and when it started making a comeback to 20,000 new cases a day, this is pretty worrisome. Look at the percentage rise. Then it was 25, then it was 30. Now, uh, yesterday, 38,000 new COVID-19 cases. That's an increase of 195% over just the last two weeks. Deaths, unfortunately, are up as well. So the Washington Post has a story about a growing number of top Republicans urging their supporters to get vaccinated because there's this big chunk of the country that hasn't done it. We have these life-saving vaccines, and they haven't done it. As the uh, Delta coronavirus variant surges across the U.S., it's now about 83% of the people getting affected are with this Delta variant. And that was sort of predictable. It's the way these viruses go. So here's Mitch McConnell, who's spoken out before, who had polio was acute, spoken out before yesterday. Uh, he once again said, these shots need to get in everybody's arms as rapidly as possible or we're going to be back in a situation in the fall that we don't yearn for, uh, that we went through last year. I want to encourage everybody, says the Senate Minority Leader, to do that and to ignore all of these other voices that are giving demonstrably bad advice. 
know who else just got the, uh, the shot? Steve Scalise, the number two House Republican, got the Pfizer vaccine over the weekend. He had resisted, but, you know, in his case, he says that he believes he had COVID and he tested positive for, positive for antibodies. And he wanted to wait and make sure other people could go first. But, you know, he knows it's symbolic. And in an interview uh, with The Washington Post, he said there shouldn't be any hesitancy over whether or not it's safe and effective. Uh, But there is this partisan divide that I have decried again and again and again. A survey in May by CNN, 100% of Democrats in the House and Senate have been vaccinated. At that time, at least, only 44.8% of House Republicans and 92% of Republican senators could say the same. And then you have, you know, even when you're vaccinated, there's this question now, because you can still get it, but the symptoms will be mild. You're not going to go to the hospital, an overwhelming possibility that you're not. So that's why the vaccine is so effective, these vaccines. But those six Texas Democrats, you remember that picture of them on the plane, well, nobody wearing masks, everybody smiling? Well, six of them now have COVID-19. Unfortunately, their symptoms are mild, but it does... Uh, show you that in certain situations, it probably makes sense to wear masks. You have a White House official who is now uh, a vaccinated official, now has coronavirus, um, a, a top aide in Nancy Pelosi's office, vaccinated, now has the virus. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader, I believe in vaccines. So the Washington Post portrays this as a positive shift. Now, the New York Times has also a story today that, put, that blames the Republicans for all this rather than looking at the positive side of McConnell and Scalise and others speaking out more forcefully. Uh, as the coronavirus surges in the states and districts, many congressional Republicans have declined to push back against vaccine skeptics in their party who are sowing mistrust about the shot's safety and effectiveness. So it's not what they're doing, it's what they're not doing. So it's kind of like glass half empty, glass half full. Washington Post says, hey, this is good, even if it's belated, that they're speaking out more forcefully. Uh, New York Times says, ah, you know, they're they're not doing enough. Um, Most Republicans have either stoked or ignored the flood of misinformation reaching their constituents. Well, there's a pretty big difference between stoking and ignoring it although I do think speaking out is positive, uh, instead have focused their message about the vaccine on disparaging President Biden, characterizing his drive to inoculate Americans as politically motivated and heavy-handed, says the New York Times. Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, one of the states with a very low vaccination rate, uh, said people who are skeptical are not going to get their shots until this administration acknowledges the efforts of the last one. Well, it just so happens, and I agree, Operation Warp Speed, and I've said, look, this was a, a, a major accomplishment by Donald Trump. Not everything he did, clearly. I mean, he, the failure to take the virus more seriously, at least publicly, for months was a monumental blunder and probably why he lost the election. But he did create Operation Warp Speed. And Kate Bedingfield, the communications director for the Biden White House, in an interview on television yesterday said, it's a great thing. Uh, that President Trump did that. So I think they're, they're starting to get the message. But, you know, the idea that if Biden just praises Trump more, then all the Trump people are going to go out and get it, all the Trump supporters, I think that's kind of an overstatement. I think if Donald Trump, as I said to Corey Lewandowski, were to become more frequent and more forceful in his advocacy of getting the shots, that would move the needle, excuse the pun. And um, if he spent less time worrying about 
arguing that the election was rigged and more about saving lives now, that would be a good thing. So in this Times piece, Congressman Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina talks about the door-to-door effort. Uh, he, he had said, uh, I guess this is actually a couple of days ago, right-side broadcasting. Uh, they, if, they, if they do this, they can go door-to-door to take your guns. Then they can go door-to-door to take your Bibles. Well, is that going to scare people into letting answering the door when somebody comes to try to persuade them to get the virus? Obviously, nobody should be forced or coerced to get the virus, although there is there are more and more private companies and local governments. There's now New York City saying if you want to be a health worker, um, you got to get the vaccine because that protects others, obviously. The Atlantic has a piece on more uh, Republicans and conservatives speaking out. These include... Uh, Ben Shapiro of the Daily Wire. I'll talk about him a little bit later. Uh, he's, he has had this position all along. Uh, he says, get vaxxed. I did. My wife did. My parents did. Chris Ruddy, the CEO of Newsmax, which continues to air a lot of, you know, Trump is great, the election was stolen, uh, programming. He continues to be a confidant of Donald Trump. He published a column saying, Six months into his administration, President Joe Biden should be applauded for making a huge dent in the COVID pandemic and goes on to endorse vaccinations. That's a good thing. But now there's this other New York Times piece about Fox News because, you know, it's a very convenient thing uh, for people who hate Fox to beat up on Fox. Fox is responsible for this. Fox is uh, convincing people not to get it. When obviously... Uh, as I mentioned on yesterday's podcast, you have people like Steve Ducey, you have people like Sean Hannity, you have anchors like John Roberts and Dana Perino and Harris Faulkner uh, joining in a PSA. Uh, so there are voices that are more skeptical or raising questions. There are a lot of voices on Fox, and I'm one of them, saying it's a, great to get this life-saving vaccine, go out and get it. That all of the cases now and all of the people being hospitalized, I say all, 99%, are among the unvaccinated. So the New York Times takes note of this. Oh, Steve Ducey said this. Uh, oh, Sean Hannity said this. And then we get into this mistake that was made. Okay, well, first of all, listen to this. The White House organized an informational briefing for Fox News producers and journalists this spring with several officials who are helping with the coronavirus response. So it sounds like the administration's singling out Fox. But then the next sentence, next paragraph says, oh, the administration held similar discussions with other networks. So that's just routine. Then there was this, this is fascinating. Here's, let me just read you what's in the time story. Quote, there have been no high-level conversations between Fox News media and the White House regarding our coverage, Fox News said in a statement. Quote, we had one routine briefing with the White House, referencing it earlier in early May on vaccination rates, and our D.C. Bureau personnel are regularly in touch with them on a variety of issues, as is the case with every network. So the Times publishes this, but what it doesn't publish is the fact that CNN made an accusation that turned out to be false and has kind of walked it back now, saying, you know, sources say that the White House is so concerned that there's been high-level meetings uh, between the White House and Fox News about coronavirus coverage. And that would suggest that, you know, the Biden team is really worried about Fox's coverage. I think the Biden team should be concerned about reaching Fox's audience. I've invited Anthony Fauci on my program several times. I've gotten to know each time. I will try again this week. Um, you know, Fox News is more than just going on Fox News Sunday. I mean, Chris Wallace does a great job. In any event, the Times reports the denial, but not the fact that CNN made the mistake, reported something that nobody now says is true. And speaking of the former president, 
Um, the new book out by Washington Post reporters Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker, I Alone Can Fix It. Uh, they did an interview. Uh, now they're out promoting their book. And uh, Carol Lennig said on MSNBC that Trump told them that the reason that he personally didn't wear a mask was that um, he felt it was important in his mind, here's the quote, looking strong, looking healthy, looking impenetrable, according to Carol Lennig. Of course, he ended up getting COVID-19 anyway. Uh, she also said on the air, I will tell you, we learned in our reporting that the chief of staff, Mark Meadows at the time, counseled the medical advisors and political advisors, no way, he can't wear a mask. He's already dug in on this. He can't do it because his base will basically rebel. Well, to put it mildly, that's concerning. Hey, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the Jeff Bezos uh, space landing. I have a, a whole column up on this on foxnews.com about how it's you know changing Bezos's image, and uh, you know he now wants to devote himself to space exploration and climate change. Not so much Amazon, not so much the Washington Post. Um, and here's you know there's been a lot of criticism of him and Richard Branson, like oh it's just these billionaires they just wanted a thrill. And I, I get the criticism, and, and Bezos doesn't even dispute the criticism. But here's two pieces in National Review. First of all, number one, a friendly reminder that Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson owe you nothing. That's right. Nothing. Nada. Zip. Zero. Nil. Bupkis. In the last two weeks, they've flown into space. And I've read complaint after complaint. This author says, it's grotesque. It's selfish. It's narcissism. Why don't they fix the problems on Earth? Sure, they could do that if they want to. But if they don't, that's fine, too. You know what? It's their money, not your money. You don't get a say in how they spend it. If Branson and Bezos want to build personal rockets that take them to the edge of space, they can. If they want to lie in a golden bath and drink champagne all day, they can. Uh, they've made enormous amounts of money selling legal products and services that people want. And I think that's a fair point. And it goes on to say that this is how the system works. And the fact that they're extremely rich doesn't mean they have an obligation to consider how you would use their property if you were in their position. But I think a, a better point is made in the second National Review article, which says, leaving aside the incoherence of arguing we should be spending more money on various social programs, this round of space exploration has not asked for taxpayer support. That's right. You know, we get to continue space research, and uh, it's not... You know, as the argument always made against NASA, why does why does administrations going back to JFK um, using taxpayer dollars to land on the moon to explore Mars and all of that? We can feel national pride in the accomplishments of our fellow citizens. Um, yes, this is a vanity project by rich men, says this other national view piece. So what? It's their money. Rich men's vanity projects have a long history in this country that's often led to progress and public Benefit, who supports your local sports team, who commissions works of art. And there's an example from history here of Cornelius Vanderbilt. In 1853, I did not know this, he at that time was probably the world's leading businessman. He constructed one of the largest steamships in the world. It was larger than any steamer in the U.S. Navy at the time. He used it as a personal yacht to sail across the Atlantic, but he also furthered our knowledge of how to build steamships. The next steamship he built, the Vanderbilt, was built in 1855. He ended up, quote, selling the ship, which cost nearly $1 million in 1855 dollars. So it would be, you know, tens of millions, uh, if not hundreds of millions of dollars today to build. He ended up essentially giving it to the Navy in 1862 for $1 
to aid the Union in the Civil War. That's an interesting historical example of somebody who did this because he was a rich guy and he wanted to have this incredibly luxurious ship so that he could sail across the Atlantic. And then the successor ship ends up helping the North win the Civil War. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. I want to turn now to a piece by NPR that just has me bouncing off the walls. It is so bad. It is so bad that it's amusing. It is like a parody of a liberal hit piece. It is the blinders here, the uh, inability to see in this critique that the whole world is not like all things considered on national public radio. That there are conservatives out there who have legitimate points of view. And I'm not a big NPR basher. I think there are some talented journalists there. I know it gets government money. Uh, but I think it has moved more and more left, uh, judged on some recent things that I've seen. But this is actually amusing because it is so willfully blind to the idea that there might be some conservatives out there who are successful and they're not crazy. So the headline is, in 2021, Ben Shapiro rules Facebook. Now, if you happen not to be familiar with Ben Shapiro, extraordinarily um, smart, aggressive conservative who has built this sort of empire uh, under the rubric of the Daily Wire. He's an author of books. He has an extremely successful podcast and a website that is generating a lot of traffic. Uh, and, you know, you can agree with him, you can not agree with him, you can think he's too extreme, that's fine. But that's not what this piece is. The piece starts out in a kind of a praiseworthy mode. The conservative podcast host and author's personal Facebook page has more followers than the Washington Post, and he drives an engagement machine unparalleled by anything else on the world's biggest social networking site. So he's figured out how to do Facebook. An NPR analysis of social media data found that the Daily Wire received more likes, shares, and comments on Facebook than any other news publisher by a wide margin. So you would think, like, hats off. Like, how does Ben Shapiro do it, okay? It says, you know, Daily Wire articles with such headlines as Proof that wokeness is projection by nervous racist white women who can't talk to minorities without elaborate codes regularly garner tens of thousands of shares for the site. Uh, cost-efficient media expert. Okay, and here we go. One that experts worry may be furthering polarization in the United States. Right, so because Ben Shapiro is outspokenly, aggressively, unabashedly conservative, this is part of what ails America. There's, there's no understanding whatsoever that, you know, you take your pick, MSNBC, uh, NPR, the New York Times op-ed page, the Washington Post op-ed page, the Huff Post are so liberal that they could also be considered to be furthering polarization in the United States. But no, no, no. It's, it, they're fine because they're normal. They think the way we do. Shapiro... He's a polarizing guy. We look at these headlines on his site. He actually writes headlines that get people to click on them. Because no other site does that, right? I mean, the Washington Post doesn't care if you click or not. It's all just straight news. I mean, I just use it as an example. This goes on and on. And there's a lot of quotes from this guy, Jamie Settle, director of the Social Networks and Political Psychology Lab at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. There's a demand among certain subsets of the public for outrage politics. 
And to his credit, he says this happens on both the left and the right, but the people who do this on the right have just found a lot more successful ways of doing it. But that's not the NPR view. The NPR view is uh, there's a subset of the public that wants outrage politics, and they're all crazy conservatives. Oh, get this. The Daily Wire produces little original reporting, but instead mostly repackages journalism from traditional news outlets with a conservative slant. And you can just sort of hear the disdain in the voice that this would be read on the radio. Um, now, of course, you know, HuffPost, which became one of the most influential um, websites ever when Ariana founded it, and has over the years done some original reporting, but a lot, lot less this year. And it's since been sold, and she's not involved with it anymore. It doesn't just repackage things with a liberal slant. Look at every flipping headline on HuffPost. Republicans are bad. Democrats are good. The only Democrats who aren't good are Democrats who aren't far enough left. So it's not like, you know, Ben Shapiro woke up one day and said, I'm going to be an evil genius. Other conservative outlets such as The Blaze, Breitbart News, and The Western Journal that publish an aggregated and opinion content aimed at invoking outrage also have been generally more successful than legacy news outlets. Okay, so there's more of them, and they're out there, and they're conservative. Um, I'm depressed by it, says this guy settled, showing his political views, but I'm not that surprised. This has everything to do with the psychology of news consumers and the broader issues with polarization in American culture. Right. So, you know, all the people that you watch on MSNBC, um, Chris Hayes, Rachel Maddow, Lawrence O'Donnell, uh, they're not polarizing. They're not trying to jump, drum up outrage. Yeah, they are against Donald Trump, against the right, against Republicans, and so forth. And it's fine. They're entitled to do that. Oh, and the Daily Wire doesn't provide much context, says this guy Settle. He's quoted like nine times. A few other people are quoted uh, as well. So Shapiro stands accused of taking red meat culture war issues that might seem offensive at first glance, says Judd Legum former Democratic campaign operative who founded Think Progress, and now they're going to, you know, a pretty far-left guy to critique Ben Shapiro. Um, but he gives them an intellectual sheen, Shapiro does. He's able to make them seem as enticing as possible and make them not seem crazy. Nobody on the left would do that. This is all the pathological right. So Matt Taibbi, you know, a longtime writer for Rolling Stones, then had his own substack. He has a piece on this. Even before I read Taibbi, I looked at this thing and I said, wowza. Um, so he says, what's the problem here? Is the complaint that Shapiro peddles misinformation? No. Quoting from NPR, the articles the Daily Wire publishes don't normally include falsehoods. Are they worried about the stoking of Trumpism or the belief that the 2020 election was stolen? No, because Shapiro, again quoting NPR, publicly denounced the alt-right and other people in Trump's orbit, as well as the conspiracy theory that Trump is the rightful winner of the 2020 election. So even by NPR standards, Ben Shapiro must get something right because he doesn't believe in the whole rigged election business. Are they mad? That the site is opinion disguised as news? No, no, because, again, quoting, publicly the site does not purport to be a traditional news source. In fact, this is what the Daily Wire says on its About page. The Daily Wire does not claim to be without bias. We're opinionated, we're noisy, and we're having a good time. Maybe NPR is just against people having a good time. So it's not even like, you know, it, people are being fooled or suckered into thinking that this is straight news when it's actually conservative opinion. 
Again, you don't have to agree with everything Ben Shapiro says. I don't. I like some things he says. I don't like some things he says. But this notion that he's, because he's so successful, he's fueling the polarization. He's masquerading as what he really isn't. That's not true at all. And just no awareness whatsoever in this NPR piece about the fact that liberals, lots of liberals, lots of sites, lots of newspapers do the same thing and they're just not as good at it. So more news now, another indictment from Trump world. Tom Barrack, a billionaire businessman, longtime friend of Donald Trump for 30 or 40 years, uh, and he was the chairman of Trump's inaugural committee. He was arrested yesterday out in California and charged with violating foreign lobbying laws, also obstructing justice, also making false statements. Now, you know, he's presumed innocent. It's just an indictment. Um, he lives in L.A., and the foreign lobbying charges have to do with his dealings with the United Arab Emirates, according to this indictment. He and there are two other defendants are accused of acting as agents of the UAE between 2016, during the campaign, and April of 2018, about a year and a half into the Trump presidency. Barrack is accused of lying to FBI agents during an interview about his dealings with the UAE. Now, a lot of high-powered lobbyists get into, or high-powered businessmen get into this problem because you can absolutely advocate, you can be a friend of the president, you can advocate with his government uh, for some foreign power or company or government, but you got to register. you got to register with the Justice Department. Uh, this came up with the whole Hunter Biden business and whether he should have been registered. Uh, and so a statement comes out from his camp uh, Mr. Barrack has made himself voluntarily available to investigators from the outset. He is not guilty and will be pleading not guilty. Um, there's another guy charged who works with his firm, a third person who's a citizen of the UAE, one of Trump's closest associates. So the prosecutors are saying here that Barrack capitalized on his access to Trump. That's how it's done, folks. And other high-ranking government officials and his relationship with American journalists, this is interesting, to advance the policy goals of a foreign government without disclosing their true alliances. Now, this could be, if proven to be true, you know, serious business. I mean, people have gone to jail for unregistered foreign lobbying. Uh, Justice Department saying that Barrack pushed the interests of the UAE to the Trump administration without disclosing that he's working on, on the country's behalf. Um, he's called in uh, by federal prosecutors extremely wealthy and powerful individual with substantial ties to Lebanon, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, it was said that he poses a serious flight risk because he's got vast financial resources, access to private aircraft, so he could just fly off somewhere and never get extradited. And some of the ties he has is with countries that don't have extradition treaties, but the prosecutors said they could envision a bail package uh, for Tom Barrack that imposes strict conditions upon his release from custody. Uh, Barrack helped rescue his wife, good friends, helped rescue Trump's business empire decades ago when he was in some financial trouble. He was a top fundraiser for the campaign. Uh, he could have been an ambassador, but he turned that down. He was an informal advisor on the Middle East uh, and tried to, and he often would go to the region and try to get Trump more interested in the subject of the Middle East. So there's nothing in here that I see that says that President Trump knew about this or, um, you know, was doing business with his friend Barrack, you know, without caring that he was representing UAE. Apparently, the, all the alleged criminal activity was on Tom Barrack's side. 
So if you look at all of the people who were part of Trump's world, who later got into legal trouble, I mean, look at Michael Cohn, who ended up going to prison. And you look at Steve Bannon. I mean, some of these people, like Bannon, got pardons, commutations. Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, his first national security advisor. Now we can add Tom Barrack to the list. Um, it just shows you that some of these folks, and again, I don't presume any guilt here, but some of these folks thought they could play by a different set of rules. And that's why this case is noteworthy. Well, that's it for me today. Always a joy having you along for the ride. You can always subscribe to our podcast at Apple iTunes and a whole lot of other places. We'll see you back here tomorrow, I hope, with more BuzzBeer. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.